to the Business of Primary Care podcast. This season, we will be discussing the ins and outs of value-based care. Before we dive into today's show, let me introduce you to the guests on the episode. We kick it off with our host, Katila Farley, a registered nurse certified in value-based care, and Dr. John Hart, a VBC expert and author. We feature three guests, Millennium Physician Group's Director of Field Marketing, Laura Wax, and their Marketing and PR Manager, Michelle McCormick. And we welcome back Sean Mara, founder and CEO of Helta. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation on technology and value-based care. This season has been such an exciting season as we've transitioned away from individual guest speakers and are deep diving across multiple guests and topics in a form of a documentary. While challenging, it offers insights into strategies and expertise across subject matter experts that are spread across the country. Along with me, a fellow expert in value-based care is Dr. John Hart. And Dr. John, today, let's dive into technology. What is the first thing you think of when we start to think about healthcare technology? Yeah, Katila, so the first thing I think about uh, with technology is why have we been so slow and ineffective at incorporating technology into the business of primary care? I mean, we do use technology in clinical medicine, but we've lagged on getting it into the non-clinical aspects of, of the healthcare industry. Computers have been around for a long time, but we just started in the last 10, 15 years using electronic health records, right? I mean, that. Yeah, it's amazing to me how behind uh, I feel like healthcare's been. Like, you, you take a look at how quickly retail shifts and healthcare's just kind of been the same. Yeah. So, you know, I was reading an article on artificial intelligence the other day just so I wouldn't. Uh, be an idiot and having AI conversations, sort of an AI for dummies thing. But anyway, they talked about AI being the fourth industrial revolution. And as a, a person with a history degree, that, that might be debatable. But what really got my attention was to talk about the first three industrial revolutions. Uh, that they, they mentioned the steam engine in the 19th century and how that led to the ability to mechanically produce things. Mm-hmm. And then they said the second was the wide adoption and utilization of electricity in the early 20th century that allowed for mass production. And then the third was information technology in the 1970s that enabled automation. Interestingly, too, the term artificial intelligence was first used in the 1950s, but we'll we can talk about that another time. All the way back into the 1950s. Wait, I thought this was a new concept. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we thought value-based care was a new concept too, but Mr. Kaiser started it uh, back in the in the 40s in his shipyards in Southern California. But anyway, so when I heard all that, my brain went to, okay, how has medicine responded to each of these revolutions of industry? And so when I think about it, we did finally figure out how to mechanically intervene in patient care. You know, we, we made iron lungs and then ventilators. We figured out how to do IV fluids and pumps. There's surgical techniques that we used, um, uh, mechanical intervention. Uh, and then we definitely figured out how to mass produce healthcare, first making hospitals our factories, and then we sort of rolled out the whole mass production concept to all venues. So if, if information technology really gained its stronghold in the 70s, 
why was it that we're still struggling with automation and the use of data uh, in healthcare delivery? That's the big change that's happening right now. We've we've thrown a label of AI onto it, but a lot of the things that people talk about AI really aren't artificial intelligence at all. It's really automation, which should be driven by information technology. So as I think about it, this lack of applied technology and automation is really what ruined the whole HMO, health maintenance organization, efforts of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, I remember being a patient in an HMO uh, and uh, thinking, well, this is interesting. And then you know they got accused of rationing care and just sort of fizzled out. But the foundational piece of healthcare technology hadn't been invented yet. And that's the electronic health record, the EHR or the HER, if your computer has autocorrect on. But um, if you could just imagine what these HMOs were trying to do, you know, the nightmare of data collection with paper charts, that's really what contributed to the failure of HMOs in the 1990s. Well, and I also think about I remember when they were rolling them out, there there was no guidance on a uniform way for those EMRs to talk. So you know, they they bonused people to do it, but to talk to each other is a whole different story, which is really it's one of the biggest problems we have today. Well, and in the in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, there there were hard nobody had EMRs and or EHRs. So you ask about when I think about technology. And medicine, I think the EHR is a foundational tool. It's extremely useful in the enablement of value-based care because in value-based care, we need to proactively know and review and analyze uh, the conditions and the circumstances that all impact our patients' well-being and outcomes. We need to, and I'll just list some things off here, but we need to know their demographics, their diagnoses their medicines, their family history, uh, prevention and early detection information on that patient. Um, Know who's scheduled for an appointment, who's not, who's their insurance payer. Um, We need biometrics like blood pressures or lab results or things like that, Um, BMI. We potentially would want to know what their social risks are. We can talk more about that later. but we also want to know who all's in in the care team. And, you know, here's the thing. We have all that data now, uh, but now we need, what we've learned over the last five years, at least, is we need tech tools to aggregate, sort, and present that data into meaningful and actionable insights. The EHR can hold all sorts of stuff and tons of information. This is the whole big data movement. But it's created the need for an efficient and effective way to turn that data into information. So it's kind of an interesting thing that one tech tool led to the need for another tech tool. And the HMOs needed all that data and they needed data sorting tools, but they couldn't, they didn't have a way to swim in these massive data lakes that now we're able to to access. It's interesting to me. And with all of that technology, you need people to analyze it. And so it, it just creates this additional administration layer that exists. We need people to analyze it until AI picks up and can do that for us. Because I do think that AI has a, has a place in data analysis. Oh, absolutely. And so you mentioned a, another key component earlier, and, and that's the ability for electronic health records for EHRs to be able to send and receive information 
to each other and across multiple platforms. And frankly, that's been the failed promise of the electronic health record. We'll talk more I, in another episode about interoperability, because that's a whole long conversation in and of itself. Um, but so we'll leave it at that for now. Let's think more about technology in terms of what can it do, not what should it do, but what can it do for us in healthcare, and maybe talk about some of the other uh, use cases for technology beyond the health record. Yeah, I like that. And I'm, I think this is a great opportunity to... Um as we think through different technical resources, I had the opportunity to speak with a group from Millennium, um, Michelle and Laura, and they had to, a good bit to say about improving efficiencies and tasks and utilizing technology. So let's listen in. Is there anything you guys are taking a look at or you're planning for futuristic that's that might be super fun to kind of talk about or Laura what do you know do you know anything <laughs> uh, no millennium I mean we're a very technologically forward company so they're already working with a company that uh, you know they scrub the charts they give the providers information about their appointments but we're also looking at AI um, and we're doing a little bit of that even with our phone system, we have something called Mama, where um, it's transcribing what the patients are saying, and um, it's getting smarter all the time. So um, as technology changes, I'm sure that you will see Millennium and the forefront of that using AI and, and everything else that uh, is coming down the pike. And there's such a fear there, uh, the liability behind that. I know Nuance was doing the Dragon dictation software and then providers found out that everything's being recorded and what would that look like if something were to end up in a court of law. And so there's all these when we talk to people about, I love talking to people about the business of primary care because if they're in retail, they always have these thoughts for you. And I'll say to them, we don't have you guys do not have near the regulations or concern as healthcare. Like those thoughts are great, but this is why we could never make that work. And so I think about that, Laura, from a technology standpoint, like what's AI going to do? But yes, uh, staying on the, we, we would always call that the bleeding edge, staying right there on the bleeding edge where you're, you're kind of getting bumped around and harmed, but in order to stay ahead, you kind of got to live there. Yeah. I mean, we didn't realize how robust the the telehealth system that our IT guys put together until we needed it. So, you know, who knows what they're developing in the background that we won't know about until we need it. Um, I guarantee they have something in the works that is going to be game changer coming forward. Awesome. When I think futuristic too, I mean, I feel like the Jetsons are real. Uh, just this past weekend, I was at a Mexican restaurant and a robot delivered my chips and salsa. And I looked around and it was the coolest experience. And I think about even cell phones in my lifetime now do so many things. So well, the Jetsons had teleconferencing. Wait, I mean, if you go back and look at the cartoon, they were talking with their, you know, their other people tell it on FaceTime before FaceTime was a thing. I love that Michelle and Laura called out some tools and uh, there's this whole new section uh, people may not have heard of, but it's called provider enablers or provider enablement. Dr. Hart, I'm sure you've heard of this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's cool. Some of the things that they mentioned 
are some fulfillments of the promise uh, of automation that came with the third industrial revolution of technology, uh, of information technology. And I promise I will not get hung up on the industrial revolutions, but it just, so the, the whole notion of pre-visit chart scrubbing and pre-visit planning, uh, and, the, and using technology for that, both to find out who needs what done, how do you contact them and, and, uh, moving along in those directions. I thought, you know, the, they talked about transcription of patient phone calls. How cool is that? That's actually can be considered an AI uh, uh, innovation, um, but then and then telemedicine, and uh, you know we're going to hear a lot about tel- telemedicine today, um, and, and and frankly, uh, rightly so because it's it's a it's a driver of patient access, and as is a lot of the things in technology. Access is, is something that it's a lever that can get pulled to lower medical expenses and value-based care. You know, and it's, it's no surprise that the one day, one way door of healthcare just, it doesn't meet the needs of our internet driven society anymore. Um, patients now with the internet have a proactive way of engaging with healthcare, sometimes through their docs or providers and sometimes not. Yeah. I remember one of the first ways we tackled our phone calls, we used to get over a thousand a day. And I remember we actually charged money to use our portal, uh, which was funny. This is years and years ago. And people hear that now and they're like, wait, what? And I was like, you're giving them all access to providers. I mean, last I looked, if you call your attorney, there's going to be a bill, but not so not so much in the world of healthcare. It, 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 it amazes me the difference in running businesses in many different aspects of the world and healthcare. And so I remember this approach and then we, we took a different approach. We opened it up, we made it free, but it gave the providers the opportunity to say, if you're having trouble getting through on the phone, no problem. We have this portal. What it did was segment the population. So different age categories wanted to use the system. And so it made us more available to the patients that were using the portal. We could engage them that way. And if they wanted to call on the phone, we could engage them that way. But what that led to was a focus on the the patient engagement, the early days of where the patient became uh, just as responsible for their care and their outreach. You were talking about having the patient portals and things like that. Those are all derivatives of um, the the patient's pioneering uh, tech as an enabler of, of their own engagement. Uh, we're going to hear from Sean about this, but Dr. Google uh, was around a whole lot longer or before, maybe not a whole lot longer, but at least it predated uh, the patient portals and the ability to electronically ask your physician questions and things like that. And, you know, part of the problem with that was that Dr. Google was usually wrong. It could lead you down the wrong path. I I remember those uh, vividly, actually, uh, providers coming in saying, Dr. Google struck again. But um, yeah, you did mention Sean. So in speaking, uh, Sean is the CEO of HealthTap. And we dove into some alternatives to typical primary care visits and options for providers. Um, This was a really fascinating conversation. So let's give that a listen. Um, The conversation is about access, patient focus, trusting technology uh, to conduct repeatable tasks. For us, it was starting in 2010 from a less controversial place. Uh, It wasn't about convincing the world that 
we can manage people's chronic conditions over many years using high bandwidth video from your mobile devices. I mean, mind you, the app store was nascent. Mobile data connections were much worse than they are today. So it's just a very different world in just 13 years. We started from something that was, at that point, a relatively now mature technology, which was the internet search engine. Okay, so Google and sites like them had been around long enough where it was generally accepted in the healthcare industry that people went on the internet way more often than they went to the doctor's office. And even Google with their out statistics, like 7% of all health searches or a billion queries a day are related to health. Do you know there's not even a billion doctor visits in this country in the whole year? So the fact that people are going to, to Google a billion times a day tells you they're using the internet 365 times more often than the doctor. And so that's where health tech began. It was just accepting an observation that consumers are turning to the internet more often than they're turning to a, a human doctor. And is there an experience there that can be improved? And it is not controversial today, as it was not controversial then, that Googling your health questions is entirely broken because it makes you just more stressed and more confused than when you started. Because the joke is, on the internet, your headache turns into a brain tumor in two clicks or less. So what powerful words we just heard from Sean. And it, there was so much great content in there, but just thinking about a billion searches a day, um, just recently I was on a podcast uh, and- Which you knocked out of the park, by the way, Katila. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Everyone should listen to it. it we'll, we'll try and get a link to it in the in the, in the the section somewhere. Yeah, Chris Matthew um, was, healthcare ain't, Easy, I think, is uh, is the title, but it it and they the ain't is AI and talking about. And a minute ago, Doctor Hart, you said um, AI should be able to solve for a lot of the the data lake and the analyst lakes that we've got to, to dive into. And I one hundred percent agree with you that that is coming. And I have a little bit more to say on that, but first of all, I want to go back to what you said. I totally agree that a billion health related Google searches a day that's astonishing and very telling of our patients' hunger for information, for answers, and hopefully for reassurance. About AI, we all need to remember that it's not automation. That's what information technology did for us, was automate. And I love that you're calling that out because you're right. People don't know the difference between AI and automation. So I love that you're calling that out. Right, which is why it's a great marketing tool right now. You can throw AI into any conversation because, and people will say, oh yeah, okay. Because because we don't know. And I, you know, up until the last you know three, four months, I was probably one of those people too that would have said, oh yeah, all this stuff that we're doing with HCC coding, that's AI. Well, no, a lot of it's just automation, uh, which is just appropriately using information technology. Um, but so AI, you know, really means that a machine has the ability to ingest data, learn from it, make decisions and take action on that data, even if it hasn't it, you know, seen that specific scenario before. Um, and I think that will have a place in medicine and in healthcare. 
And so some of the possibilities I see with AI is expanding the use of, of tech in documentation uh, and analyzing the pop health data. I mentioned that before. I think, you know, because you mentioned having people pouring over that data. I've been one of those people before. And there are decisions that I make uh, and looking at that data that we could train a computer to do. And so analyzing pop health data could uh, and finding the insights and how they change and what's, what's happening now, that could be an AI solution. I think following patients and remote patient monitoring, we're going to talk about remote patient monitoring more as a technology, but I think augmenting that through AI uh, could be a really cool uh, AI u- use case. Um, and then also expanding its use in bi-directional patient engagement. And finally, the, the task of risk identification and stratification that's kind of done, uh, well, it's, it's certainly done automated through technology, but we could train that technology to be even smarter as we're trying to identify both, the, I mean, the medical risks, the mental health risk, and the social risks that our patients are facing and how those might negatively impact their healthcare, and then stratifying that based upon available resources to be able to move and impact uh, the folks that we can. That could be a use for AI. I think it will also, it could be, have a role, it could have a role in triage uh, and possibly routing patients to the most appropriate venue of care. Uh, So lots going on with AI. I remember to that point, to the triaging point, when we were first launching our first telehealth tool, the scary part was if you misdirected, right? So um, if a patient stated they were having congestion and it was hard to breathe, the system would automatically tell them to go to the hospital. And these are very basic symptoms of somebody who likely has uh, crud or uh, some lung infection. Um, It might not be go straight to the hospital, but um, fast forward many years, it's come a long ways. Crud, is is that an Alabama term? or? It All might right. be an Alabama term. <laughs> <laughs> the crud. <laughs> I got the crud. So again, the application of, of AI, of machines learning with that. So, you know, we've both set up nurse call lines, nurse triage lines 24-7 to answer calls. And there's usually some algorithm uh, that they're following. Uh, and But then the the important part is that the, the nurse then uh, uses their brain to uh, make sure they're going down the right path and and learn how to do things and and move along that. That potentially could be done by AI. And that all gets us into this whole other part of of the conversation with artificial intelligence in terms of what it can and can't do, because we hear more and more about our ability to trust or not trust the information that is artificially generated by these machines. So in your chat with Sean, he goes on to address the trust issue with internet access to healthcare. And then he mentions uh, one use case scenario that uh, comes with a positive return on investment, ROI. So let's listen to that. You either are on these trusted information websites that lack any context. And so they're just showing you articles about brain cancer because the word headache is mentioned in them, or you're on social media or in forums where you're getting very personalized answers to your very personal questions, but they're from strangers with unknown credentials, often misinforming you. 
and it's the blind leading the blind and you end up with potentially harmful, inaccurate information in your hands. So we began from a place that was not controversial, which is we know people are going to the internet and we know that experience is very broken. So it was not tough to go to physicians and get them to accept those truths and say, do you want to be part of that solution? So let's not talk about diagnosis and treatment and advice. Let's just talk about educating patients with more accurate information. So maybe when they do show up to your offices, they're more informed. They are no longer asking questions that you have to repeat yourself answering a hundred times a day, because maybe technology can take your time and let you use it more efficiently by taking this knowledge you have about questions people are asking on the internet for which you are the supreme authoritative expert on. And instead of having you repeat it over and over again, verbally behind closed doors in private one-on-one, could you just publish it online in a way that not only benefits the person asking the question, the moment, but the thousands of others who are inevitably going to follow with the same question who can now read your answer. So now two, three, four minutes of your investment in publishing your knowledge can pay dividends for decades to come for everyone after that asker who has the same question. And let's be real, a lot of questions in healthcare are repetitive. <laughs> so health that began as an online question and answer forum. And that's so fascinating because it's so different than what I just described to you. But in 2010, that was the place to start. And we collected and engaged tens of thousands of doctors around the country to do like what they might do on Wikipedia or a Quora, which is as experts volunteer knowledge, you know, just share with the world answers to questions that the world has and do it out of the goodness of your heart. Do it maybe because along the way you might learn from your peers and do it because it might actually make your own practice more efficient and more delightful. We, we resonated with physicians with that mission statement. And it was this beautiful flywheel that ended up attracting consumers under the hook that, hey, we have a site where real doctors that you can trust are answering your questions for free. And uh, physicians were being called to action because we have millions of people coming to a site that seek your knowledge. Uh, And it just, it took off. And uh, that obviously eventually evolved into the realization, hey, consumers, hey, docs, you guys are educating each other. What about maybe pushing a button and getting into diagnosis and treatment? That was a fancy and sneaky way of backing into telehealth, but... It didn't start with telehealth. It just started higher up in the funnel, let's say, with a behavior that people do before they need a telehealth visit, and then eventually evolved into very naturally taking people who go from, is it safe? Should I be worried? Is this normal? To, okay, what do I have and what should I take for it? And eventually giving them a button to go from posting anonymously in an educational forum to getting into a private text or video chat to get a real diagnosis and treatment plan just seemed obvious. And by that point, people were much more willing to try because we had gotten their foot in the door. Okay, in thinking of telemedicine, Katila, you know, I, I have to go back 30 years on this. I worked 
for a health system and a residency program in, in the 1990s with that had a center for rural health. And we were building, and this was in Indiana, and we were building and developing telemedicine tools for the use in the rural areas around our state uh, and around that particular health system. We're developing virtual stethoscopes, otoscopes, dermoscopes, ways to transmit echoes, all that. Um, problem was nobody wanted to pay for it. It all had to happen in our in the Center for Rural Health, too. People came to us. We had the PC on the desk. We did all that and sent the information to a specialist. So the tech was there, but patients didn't know anything about it unless we told them because their payers weren't going to cover it. And, you know, I, now that you said all that, I remember they had these pods and they would put them at a lot of universities. They would show us like the up and coming futuristic and it was a pod, kind of like what you see in airports for the moms to go and, um, and yeah, pump. kiosk, yeah, little kiosk, yeah. and you could pop in, and it would it would have these tools, kind of like going to a pharmacy when you sit down and you get your blood pressure drawn. So I know what you're talking about, but you're right; it didn't, well, it still hasn't, but I think it is coming soon. <laughs> in 1997, to be fair, we never envisioned the use of telemedicine being in the palm of somebody's hand that a smartphone could do. I mean, yeah, a, a kiosk or a, a pod, you know, where you've got a PC in there doing a thing. We, we could envision that, but the ability to hold all that in your hand wasn't even in our, in our line of thought at that time. Let's talk about access though. Cause I, I, I wrote an article for the business of primary care on the drivers of value-based care and access in particular, multimodal access plays a hand in all the aspects of value of the value equation. It's a driver of quality. If your patients can't get themselves or their issues in front of you, there's no chance to intervene and positively change their health trajectory. To improved outcomes uh, via access, you know, you've got to have the right treatment at the right time in the right place, and that leads to appropriate medical expense. Um, and that's all about access. The, the cost element in the value equation is impact, therefore, by access. And the experience, the third part of the equation, is greatly enriched via access through the fostering of relationship and improvement of health and well-being. The more ways you can touch a patient or allow them avenues of engagement and communication, uh, the more they're going to feel a positive experience and they're going to be invested in their health. So it's just value all around. And I love that we're thinking through access in a way that we have to be willing to incorporate new things. And I talk to clients all the time and they're like, our schedules are completely full. Well, and we have no more space for additional folks, right? And I'm like, well, you have your space 24 hours a day. You're already paying rent on it. Do you have anybody using it from five to eight? Do you have anybody using it first thing in the morning? And I know where you're about to go, which is uh, at the palm of your hand and the phone, but there's so many moments where you can think about access and ways to intervene. No, absolutely. And we get so stuck in that mode. And and even, you know, just that that putting ourselves into the box of there's a front door to our practice and that's how people access our practice. Or maybe we'll let them call us on the phone, though anymore, you just get an answering machine that says, uh, go to the emergency department, you know, whatever. So what in that article, I, I was talking about the many different types of access. Uh, but I think, you know, technology can, ex- can enable 
access into a PCP practice. And, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. you already mentioned one simple tech solution, and that's a patient portal where questions can be asked, you know, uh, much like the concept of Dr. Google, but with the PCP and the PCP's team being the ones answering it, not some auto-generated thing that says, yeah, you probably have a cancer. And through that same portal, you know, appointments can be made or refills can be requested. So that's basic stuff. There are more gourmet access points via technology too. And it was awesome in your talk with, with Sean, I'd like for you to play the next segment where you and he are talking about, um, patients and the importance for them uh, to be a part of this enablement and and the, the different ways that technology can improve access. It's so interesting you bring that up because you're totally right. Today we take for granted even physicians view of telemedicine as a commonplace and accepted medium to interact with your patients. But not too long ago, back in 2010, the predominant opinion of physicians was there's no way you can treat a patient virtually and there's no way I'm taking on the liability of giving advice to strangers who found me on the internet. Absolutely. And so it wasn't just a regulatory and compliance hurdle. It was a acceptance amongst the physicians who had to participate in this new way of delivering care. So you, you could have never have told me that as a technologist building a tech company for healthcare, one of the first problems I'd have to sh- solve was for liability and malpractice insurance. And how do I create a new policy? <laughs> right. You know, uh, find a innovative insurance company to create a new policy to protect physicians for the educational information they were publishing on a website. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Like, Mind-blowing. Yeah. Just not what you think you'd have to solve for, but in healthcare you did. It amazes me how products are created and concepts come to life, see a problem, attempt to solve it. While we continue our conversation around telehealth and alternative visits, let's listen to what Michelle from Millennium had to say about some practical advice on telehealth. One thing we did tactically, because I really want us to, to talk, talk to these practices about how what worked, what didn't work. Um, one thing we did was you you could have a couple of virtual sessions in a row, but minimally we had to physically see you at least one time a year. Do you guys have any kind of rules around that or or do your do you just have your providers handle or any kind of protocols? Any thoughts there? I think it's become a lot easier for telehealth and Laura, you might have a better idea about this with um, with Dr. Wax, but I think now that some of our value-based patients specifically can take their own blood pressure at home. So I think that helps with the the doctor conversation with that patient in their home. If they are taught and given that tool to really help with the assessment over the phone. So we're seeing a little bit more of that as well. And I see that being great for care coordinators, uh, care managers, because you mentioned you have transitional care in your offices. I have a feeling that that really opens that as well. I've also seen where universities are putting pods to where you can go and sit down and a provider comes up on screen and you hold the stethoscope and you put the, have you guys seen that talking futuristic? No. That one's really, really interesting um, because you know, just thinking through the population that we need to be touching and how to multiply. There was another group too who has their providers instead of retiring, go virtual. 
We did that with one of our Fort Walton Beach providers. Um, His wife was very sick. They relocated to Orlando to be closer to their children during her treatment. And he was able to continue telehealth uh, with his patients from there. So that's going to bring us to a close of this part one uh, piece on technology in value-based care and in primary care uh, and the business thereof. And we've gotten a lot in. We've talked about uh, technology and healthcare delivery, its origins and some ways it's currently having impact on on what we do. Um, In the next episode, Tech Part 2, we're going to talk about uh, how technology can enable outcomes. Remember, value-based care is outcomes-based. And then some other access points through remote patient monitoring, uh, physician remote work, and and the tech challenges that come, including multiple platforms and and change management. Uh, So we look forward to uh, continuing this conversation. 